Welcome to Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in the virtual cupboard with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. It gets a little deeper every week. I like it. One day it's going to be like it's going to be like Barry White. Hello, I'll work on that. Joining us from well, at least six thousand miles and multiple time zones away is the altogether tremendous Adele Berté. Welcome, Adele. Thank you for having me, Barney. Hi, everyone. Hi. Did I pr- Hi. did I pronounce your surname correctly? You did. You did. Good, great, Thank excellent. I didn't you. think there was any other way of pronouncing it, but I've only ever called you Adele. I've never called you Ms. Berté. No, so I thought you I'd better check. Dare. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, Ms. Berté. Anyway, I hope you've had your LA Power breakfast because you're going to need it. We have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Adele is a singer-songwriter, former contortion, former backing singer for numerous hit acts. She's also the author of not one, but two great books, the second of which is about our beloved LaBelle and is out this week. And we'll be talking about Patty and Nona and Sarah in a little while. We'll also talk about August Darnell, Auguste Darnell, and (laughs) Sally Grossman. But first... You know, I would love to hear about the city you grew up in, Adele, Cleveland, and and mm. how you came specifically to write last year's remarkable memoir, Peter and the Wolves. Tell us about Cleveland and your upbringing. Well, Cleveland, you know, it, it was such a rough city as I was growing up. It was very segregated, a lot of working class people fighting with each other for jobs, for scraps, really. But the music that was happening was was quite amazing. On the one hand, we had like bands like Perubu and the Dead Boys and Rocket from the Tombs. And Chrissy Hind actually came from Akron, but she got out of there in time. Yeah, she's an honorary <laughs> English woman. Yes, now. she is. Yes, she is. <laughs> but then on the black side of town, you had people like, you know, they're a little older than me, but there was Bobby Womack and the Daz Band and Tracy Chapman and Jimmy Scott and Albert Ayler. So there was great music happening you know, in Cleveland all along. And then I met Peter Lochner, I think it was 75 that we met, who really turned me on to so much music and, and literature. And he was kind of like the, the the vortex of all things Cleveland and music. But he had this terrible bad boy reputation that bordered on the macabre as his legend progressed because, you know, he destroyed himself with drugs and alcohol, which was very sad. But there was a lot happening in Cleveland at the time. It was kind of like, in a way, a sister city to Manchester, you know, dying industrial city, wasteland. You could see the vegetation uh, coming through the cracks in the cement, just taking the city back, you know, and the angst and uh, frustration that came from that, of course, resulted in the music. Lochner really, I mean, it's one of the great should have been stories, isn't it? I remember reading about him first in Lester Bangs's Psychotic Reactions yeah. collection. Yeah. I hadn't heard about him before. Yeah. Obviously, I'd heard of Perubu and I knew something about, about Cleveland, but I didn't know about Lochner. And, and it sort of imprinted something in my head. And so when I heard about your book, which originally, came out in 2013, didn't it? It did, but it was just something for my Kickstarter friends. I didn't really technically publish it. It wasn't for sale, you know, at that moment. That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. And now and now it's come out in as a sort of companion piece or on the back of this box set that I know you were delighted to see. I mean, he clearly is a fascinating guy. And what I love is, on, on the one hand, he was this sort of wannabe Lou Reed kind of Baudelarian junkie poet figure. But you mm-hmm. really take pains to to say that he, he wasn't like a, a kind of cartoon you know he wasn't a he wasn't a cliche he was as much into kind right. of you know Graham Parsons and Jimmy Rogers as as he was mm-hmm. into you know as he was into Lou Reed or television I mean it's actually a beautiful kind of story of of a friendship that you write about in this book thank you thank you you know one of the observations I had through the years about Peter well after being his roommate and playing music with him, is how much of a singer-songwriter he really was and how he felt such peer pressure because this was the beginning of punk. So, you know, the attitude was all aggression and and he could write a punk song like nobody's business. I mean, if you hear the song Ain't It Fun, you know, it's just amazing. Really, his soul was in the singer-songwriter tradition. You know, he loved Phil Oakes and Dylan and all these people. But around him, the milieu of punk just made him feel like he had to present the same type of image with guns and, you know, the drink. And he was very, very self-destructive. And uh, part of that was because he couldn't be himself. He felt like he couldn't be his authentic self because of the scene. At the very same time, he started all those bands. He was he started Rocket from the Tombs and Perubu, you know, with David Thomas. But the Dead Boys came out of that. And, you know, he was kind of a catalyst. And he also really supported women artists and women musicians, which was, you know, not that was not happening in the Cleveland scene. It was a very macho, very sexist, bordering on misogynistic uh, scene. Why do you think he sort of took you under his wing, Adele? I think it was the outsider that we saw in each other. You know, um, I was this little kid who came out of reformatories in Cleveland, you know, and was very out as a lesbian and uh, was singing gospel music. And he saw me singing a Janis Joplin song and I had on my apple cap and I was, you know, straight up pimping and... (laughs) He was like, you know, I could just see his eyes pop like, what the hell is this? You know, but so so we kind of, you know, resonated to that outsider in each other. And um, because ultimately, I think he was very lonely, as was I, because of our internal lives and the way we grew up. And we were like brother and sister. We became a team for a while there. I suppose, you know, one of the questions that you address in the book or that maybe have been that's been put to you is you know why didn't Peter move to New York and kind of get his act together was he so self-destructive and so kind of doubting of himself that he he felt that he wouldn't make it there ultimately or he would be rejected by Paddy Smith and Tom Verlaine and Lou Reed and the others Well, the thing is, he was initially embraced by all of those people. Tom Verlaine thought he was a brilliant guitarist. But, you know, his, yeah, 
But, you know, he was so afraid of that people would discover something about him that he was ashamed of or, I mean, that's where the drink came in. You know, it's he, that he took courage in that. But when he would be in situations with people that could have really helped him, the fear came up and he would, you know, drown it in drink and do something absolutely ridiculous, like jump on a stage with Patti Smith's band when he was pissed out of his gourd. And they'd have to take him off the stage, you know. So, yeah, he, he messed up a lot of opportunities that way. And you did move to New York City. So I wanted to ask you a bit about that. I mean, it's a very poignant moment where you, you find you're in New York and you actually, I think, have to go back to Cleveland for Peter's funeral, mm, yeah. if I remember rightly. Yeah. And then you come back and you, you know, in, in your way, you make it in New York. You become part of the scene there. You end up joining the the contortions mm. and i believe that kind of the next volume of 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 the sort of part two of the memoir is 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 going to kind of look at that time which we're all fascinated by um and yes. so i just <laughs> I, I just yeah I, mark is a, is a, is a we're all big like z records fans and uh, big James yes. White fans and so it's fa- it's yes. really really fascinating yeah, yeah. So, yeah. it has to be said that the contortions played quite the worst show i've ever seen in my life <laughs> They came to London to play, to, to play the, ven, the venue in Victoria. And I think half the band had been turned away at customs. Mm. So he had a sort of like a shitty British jazz funk band called Central Line backing him. And it was just awful. Anyway, <laughs> so, so what was it like being a contortionist? Well, what was it? Well, in the beginning, I think our first gig probably sounded very similar to what you're describing. But... Um, <laughs> But, you know, what's funny about it is that it did coalesce into this, you know, we were playing polyrhythms off of each other and it became very funky and very out because it was like these noise clusters that we were all playing, Pat playing slide guitar and me playing the ace tone organ as if it was, you know, a conga drum or something. And it was very much in that spirit of Sun Ra's clusters but yeah, yeah. but it did coalesce into something at one point that was extremely magical and almost situationist in a way, because James would jump out into the audience at Max's Kansas City and, you know, we'd be playing and he would grab some woman and start kissing her. And the woman's boyfriend would get up and start pummeling him, right? And then George Scott, the bass player, and I <laughs> would jump into the audience and it would be fisticuffs going in, you know, in front of the stage and the rest of the band would still be playing and we'd be fighting. And it was just insane, <laughs> ins- absolutely insane. <laughs> and, you know, people loved it. People loved it. The spectacle, you know? Yeah. So. Um, I mean, it's also interesting how many people came out of that band and went on to do really interesting stuff. I mean, Pat plays some I mean, the Bush Tech, yes. absolutely one of my favourite bands. It's a brilliant and, band. And brilliant. you came out of it. I mean, it, it really produced a lot of really good players and really interesting musicians. And artists as well. Straight out of it. Yeah, Though, James I mean, Nairs. I mean, obviously the stresses and strains, we got a couple of brilliant articles from New York Rocker. Mm-hmm. I think it's Tim Page wrote them. And he interviews just after basically most of that first generation of the band had left mm-hmm. James mm-hmm. and they're stabbing him in the front. And then he <laughs> interviews him and he's stabbing them in the front. Mm. And it's just yeah. hilarious. It is. You're, it is. you're out of the country in that piece. I checked it. And sadly, sadly, you were in Europe at that point. So your, your voice is not heard. <laughs> right, right. Um, yes. But it must have been a fascinating <laughs> time to be in New York between 
you know, 79 and kind of 81, mm -hmm. those years when, when, when sort of uh, disco was intersecting with like art rock and post punk. Mm -hmm. And, and as you've said, I think you said in an interview with Richie Unterberger, you know, and I think what your next book is going to be a lot about is just how many women were in that scene and what yes. a difference that made. It was, you know, there were a lot of macho pigs around, I'm sure, mm, but mm. there were so many women in so many bands. I mean, you had your own, I, I found this when I was going through my singles. Oh my God. Button up. Oh, yes. You got it. Your, <laughs> band, wow. your very own band, the bloods. was an all-girl band wasn't it, it was all yes it was yeah yeah it was it was your yeah. label it was, <laughs> yeah I was so so pleased to find that but I mean do you remember it as a place that was kind of exciting fun but also kind of a bit scary a lot of hard drugs on the scene what how do you look back on it well when I got there in 77 it was it was so revelatory because women were coming from all over the world, really. You know, we had the au pairs and the slits playing and malaria from Berlin, but not just women musicians, but women artists as well. Vivian Dick was making films of the Irish filmmaker. Kathy Acker was writing her books. Yeah. So everybody was there together. And I think because of the presence of so many female artists and musicians, in a way, it kind of pushed the guys to go even further. You know, and it was incredibly exciting what was going on. And then as things started to cross over too, like in the early eighties with hip hop and punk and no wave and and all of it, and and then the dance music as well, which Z Records was the king of. You know, one of my favorite artists on Z, Lizzie Mercier, who oh, yeah. who is just my heart. We were very very close friends, and her music was just phenomenal. And the way she played guitar was so unique and so inimitable, you know. Those records are just stellar, yeah. And Lydia Lunch. Oh, Lydia's amazing. Amazing, amazing stuff. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And she's still an iconoclast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people either run from her or just are, are attracted to her, you know. She's just amazing. She's are you still sense. in touch with Lydia? Oh, do, yeah. Do you communicate with her? Yeah, I figured. You. She's one of my oldest friends. She was my first friend in, in 1977, my first female she? friend. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and oh, we're still nice very close. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Z, and it's the perfect moment for me to ask Mark to introduce the first of our clips with August Darnell speaking about mm. precisely that scene. Yeah. Right. This is an interview with Larry Jaffe on the 16th of May 2016, four days before his musical Cherchez la Femme mm -hmm. was starting off Broadway. And in this clip, he's talking about Z Records and precisely what we've been mm -hmm. talking about. And his, his enthusiasm is, is mm. marvelous. Mm. I think it's, nice. it's great. You were at Z Records. Um, Z Records, working wow. as the house producer, I uh, was. Um, I was curious if uh, you had crossed paths with John Cale. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, All those cats. Um, yeah. You know who's still playing? Um, James White and the Blacks. I just saw him advertised at the, at, at the bar down here on the window saying, coming in June, James White and the Blacks. I said, oh, my God, this guy's still, still doing... Because everyone, there was a rumor about ten years ago that he died of a heroin overdose, 
And so he was heavy into drugs and shit. So I saw his, his poster up and I said, you know what, if I'm in town, I gotta go see this guy. James White, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And Lydia Lunch. Right. And uh, all of the, Christina, of course, Microsoft's ex. All of them. Yeah, we, we, um, we had a great little office up there. And I was like, I was a, um, I was a producer that they called upon to do everything. They said, hey, we need a remix of James Chance and the Blacks. We need to be disco. And I go in with James White and we create this incredible disco mix of that crazy guy's music. It's a good time, man. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good time. It was a good time. <laughs> I mean, conversely, Kick Roll and Coconuts Lyceum, and I think 1981 mm. was one of the best shows I've ever seen oh. in my life. It was absolutely amazing. They were total cool. show great. people. I mean, absolutely loved them, you know. Although, if you were in the no wave scene and you like you resonated to Kid Creole. You were looked at as, oh God, you know, dis, dis, <laughs> disco dance music. Uh, then, of course, James Chance got onto Z Records and it became dance music, you know? So. <laughs> Barney, do you want me to carry on talking about the interview or do we yeah. switch back? No, I think it would, what would be nice, I thought, was that clip about August Dolan talking about New York City uh-huh. and what it, what it meant to him then and what it means to him right, now. Right. Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's listen to that. It's, it's, it's great because this, got to remember, by this time, he hadn't been there for 30 years. Mm. He moved first of all to England and then to Scandinavia mm. and is no longer a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So this, this is interesting. I am the guy who penned the famous line, when you leave New York, you go nowhere. <laughs> but so I'm allowed to say that at one point in my life, I got tired of New York City. Now when I come back, it's great to come back, because um, now I see what attracted me to the place in the, in the you know, in, when I was a youngster of growing up. It's the greatest place in the world for opportunities. It's the greatest place in the world for competition, for, for doing your craft, and, and, and for walking the streets and being your own person and not having to worry about how you look or how you dress. It's a great city for many, many reasons. But coming back to it, I find this very scary. Get back, cat. Don't go relax. Believe me, I know. When you leave New York, you go nowhere. <laughs> very dirty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess if you were coming from Scandinavia, that would certainly be true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Scandinavia is very clean. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, the, it the, is. the New York of 2021 is a very different New York for 1977, 78, 79. It certainly is. Yeah. 77, Daryl Ford had told New York to drop dead. Yes. It was reported on the front. Yes. I mean, where were you living in New York at that time? I was living on the Lower East Side, the East Village, yeah, yeah. which was where everything was kind of concentrated in terms of, you know, music and art. And yeah, when I go back to New York now, it's heartbreaking. I still have a lot of friends there, of course, and and I still love it for that. But it's also full of ghosts because we've lost so many people that we love from yeah. drugs, from from AIDS, from drugs, from hepatitis C. A yeah. lot of the women that I, that I adored and were, was very close with died of hepatitis C in the last like 10, 15 years. So in a way, it's it's a bit of a ghost town for me. Yeah, yeah. And also, people have gotten priced out of it. I don't, I don't understand how young people can live there and be creative. It's not the place for young creativity now. 
I mean, first first of all, they moved out to Brooklyn because that was the only affordable place. Right. Now they're being priced out of Brooklyn. Well, exactly. God knows where they're going to. Well, they're, they're go they've all there. gone yeah. upstate now. If they if they're still in New York State, they've gone up to the Hudson Valley. Right. Most of them, I think. Right. And yeah. you know, people there are dumb. I but, do. Yeah. But have you seen the Fran Leibovitz series on, I on have. Netflix? I have. Yes. <laughs> I love. Fran. I don't know if it makes you nostalgic. <laughs> or the I, I absolutely love it. Uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. just such a kind of hymn to New York City, isn't it? Oh, totally, totally. She's. she's but I love this brilliant. audio interview with with Darnell. He comes over. He's such mm-hmm. a sort of chucklesome guy, isn't he? He's, and he's, he's, he's yeah. so grateful so yeah. and funny. He, he goes into this long riff about uh, about Seymour Steen, which is just so funny. It's, it's it's just you know, on the one hand, he really loves him, and the other hand, he's been ripped off by him. He's been mistreated right. by him. But yeah. he, but but. He's great, mm-hmm. and he, he's very funny about Prince writing a song for him, "The Sex of It," which was yes. you know, which nothing <laughs> happened, nothing much happened with because Prince that. has only just died when Larry Jaffe is talking to him. Two he's weeks, still, two, just two, died. two weeks, yeah. two weeks wow. before. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, he's just, he's he's absolutely charming. He, he goes into a riff about his university, Hofstra, mm-hmm. and about the the his fellow alumni, including. Tommy Mottola and people like that, right, you know. Right. It's, yes, yeah. Cherchez La Femme. That Cherchez La Femme so, because Tommy Mottola. So brilliant, right? That's yeah. right. I'd forgotten that Mottola gets a name check. Uh, uh, but he was actually <laughs> yeah. sort of almost like, I think he was managing Dr. Dr. Buzzard he was. the original Savannah band. Very briefly, I mean, I, yeah, right, He had right. a... Darnell played a, some kind of big part in, in the idea that I had of New York City, I think, particularly that, that mm-hmm. extraordinary machine record there, but for the grace of God, go I, which, which is really one of the most extraordinary disco records to come out of that period. Oh, yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely brilliant. And they had so much style. I mean, the musicality was brilliant, the showmanship, and, you, you know, his playfulness came out on stage. It came out in Dr. Buzzard and then in turn in Kid Creole, you know. Yeah, Just yeah, so absolutely. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, the mystery is why Kid Krill never really made it in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why essentially they had success outside of America. And and as a result, he has lived in Sweden for 30 years, although I think he says he's in Maui now. But I mean, I, I wonder why Kid Krill didn't didn't make waves in the States. Maybe they're just kind of unpigeonholable in some way, in some stylistic way, in some racial way. I don't know. I think you nailed it. I think it's the it's that mentality that the record, you know, corporate record industry has that they have to put you in a genre in a neat little box or else they don't know what to do with you. That in, that actually happened to LaBelle when they did that record for RCA, which is called Pressure Cooking which was revolutionary for its time. It was incredible, that record. And RCA dropped them after that one record because they they just couldn't handle all that black female ferocity, you know? It's like, what do we do with this? <laughs> so they dropped them, which was just, and I'm sure Vicki Wickham brought them to RCA because of Bowie. And she probably thought, well, if they're, if they're good with Bowie, they're going to be good with the theatricality of LaBelle. Etc. And um, no, they dropped them. And that record, it, it critics loved it, but it never got the uh, kudos that it deserved. You Indeed, know? I mean, is, is this a good moment, Barney? For us you, to talk you've about- segued brilliantly into the LaBelle portion <laughs> of the show, yeah, with, without even being being prompted. <laughs> so, brilliant yeah, job. Yeah, I mean, I just no, demolished bye. your book just in the last few days. Absolutely loved it. Thank demolished you. Demolished or you. devoured. Demolished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Demolished. Welcome to our show. We've demolished. <laughs> you your- demolished my book. 
How dare you? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we had Vicky as a guest as a guest on the show a few weeks ago, uh-huh. and she was a, she was a marvelous guest, and we're we're all huge. Vicky Wickham fans. Oh, here I love her. Pages. She's so brilliant. She was yeah. great. She yeah. was so, so It's great. so interesting reading about how she gets them, she meets them when they play Top of the Pops. So they're probably their first London visit. Well, ready, uh, steady, go. Ready, steady, go. No, ready, steady, ready, ready, steady, ready, go. Steady, go. Ready, yeah, steady, yeah. go. Yes, that's it. Ready, yeah. steady, and go. And they yeah. became fast friends. Mm. And then she comes over saying, you've got to change the way you're doing things. You know, this old girl group sort of stuff isn't going to work any longer. Mm. And they go with it, you know, which is amazing. Nona Hendricks comes out of that sort of aspect. Oh, brilliant. yeah, yeah. When we had on a podcast, Nona was Vicky's sound technician for the podcast. Right. Helping set up her Mac and microphone, yes, yes. <laughs> which, is, which is fabulous. Yeah, yeah. No, well, um, they're just so, so great. But, you know, Vicky, Vicky only brought out what they had yeah. simmering inside them that the whole girl group genre had repressed. Really, you know, and Nona, funny enough, Nona started writing songs when they were still a girl group. And it was Curtis Mayfield who who actually supported her when he heard her first song and said, you've got to keep doing this. This is this is really oh, brilliant. Really? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That. It's in the book, Barney. <laughs> I, did, I have read the book. I'll have you know. I just I just uh, I just didn't really take that, that bit on board. But you it, must, it's you must have been napping here. during that part, right? I nap a lot, as these guys will attest. <laughs> Where did the impetus come from to write the book about LaBelle? I had written uh, an essay about Tori Amos for a book called Women Who Rock, and Evelyn McDonald, who put that book together, said she was doing a series for the University of Texas Press called Why Music Matters, and did I want to pitch anything? And, you know, LaBelle uh, has, uh, I get into the, the idea of music in terms of how it can heal, going to the extent of how it can actually heal trauma in some cases. And LaBelle has always been incredibly close to my heart as a gay woman, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, well, there's no one has written a book about LaBelle yet. Let me write this book and pitched it. And the great thing about the series is that they don't request that you write a typical bio. It's all about, you know, your your feelings of why a specific group matters. And in my case, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was from music as a healing art as well as, as, you know, for joy and dance and everything else. So I was able to inject a little bit of memoir in terms of what they meant to me in my trajectory, you know. which, which Which is absolutely fascinating. You weave yourself into the story without putting yourself in center into the story. You know, mm. but, but your experience is all, kind of, uh, uh, always there. I think most of us in this country is Lady Marmalade, which really made us aware of La Bella as a, as sure, a group. Of course. I bought Nightbirds the moment it mm-hmm. sort of appeared. It's just a fantastic album. Mm. I, mean, I suppose partly because I was already aware of Alan Toussaint. Mm. I was a fan of Alan Toussaint. So yes. He produced it, though. I, mean, I was very interested to find out that he more or less phoned his production in from the office upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then certainly in this country, they rather disappeared. And they only went on for another three years after Nightbirds. They did two more albums, right. Phoenix and Chameleon. Mm. Chameleon, oh, my God, some of the songs on that are just... That's yeah, great. Holy cow. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they disbanded in 76 and all went their separate ways. But uh, a lot of great music came out of their 
separate careers as well. I mean, well, Patty, uh, absolutely. You know. yeah, and well, Nona, indeed, and Nona. And, and yeah. Nona, I mean, B- Busting Out was a big record for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Which, of course, was on that Z yeah. Records compilation. Yeah, it was. Disco. So yes. there's, a, there's a, a lovely overlap there. Yes. I mean, it's one of the most extraordinary stories of kind of self-reinvention, isn't it, mm, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in the history of American music? When you consider that they were a girl group that formed in 1961 mm-hmm. and played that circuit right through the 60s. Yes. And that, of course, that Patty was herself quite resistant to this idea of really changing everything about, about what they w- were doing. Right. But I think she also realized that, the girl groups were fading. The self-contained yes. male groups that yeah. were coming out of Britain were doing really well. So that was an aspect that that Vicky wanted to get into with them as well. Let you should be a self-contained unit that writes your own material and that you're expressing things that black women need to say. I think this 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 is a good moment to listen to a clip actually. Let's hmm. listen to Nona talk talking about pretty much precisely all, all of that. Oh great. Yeah. That's how LaBelle was born, with the fact that you, we could be three female singers, individuals with their own identity, and perform without having to wear the gowns, the tiaras and the pumps, and mm. you know, sing oohs and ahs all night long. It's just an That sums it up, doesn't it? Oh, it really? does. And you know. and listen, Sarah Dash was no slouch either. I mean, uh-huh. what a brilliant voice she has, still has. She was kind of like the bridge between Patty and Nona's voices. And yes. and and Nona to me has said that Sarah was the one who if if there was a note that was wonky, she would always come correct. And and right. you know, mm-hmm. but the ferocity of their vocals together when they broke through that girl group paradigm and let loose. No one had ever heard black yeah. women sing like that together. I mean, no, those no. harmonies, they weren't perfect, but they were rough and wild and extraordinarily beautiful. You know, you also talk quite extensively about what you, know, what you and others term Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. And, and you point out the fact that they invented George Clinton's mothership to all intents and purposes. In a, yeah, in a sense, because he followed them in in, yeah. in that Afrofuturist presentation. I mean, it was really Nona who was kind of like the godmother of Afrofuturism in music. She's such yeah. a startling figure. Isn't oh, she's she? amazing. She's like, she's like this Amazonian-like space priestess. Yes, uh, yes. She's a, she's phenomenal and yeah. wrote most of the original yeah. but, but, stuff that yeah. they did. But yeah. she herself says in the book, I believe, that Sun Ra was a big influence on her. So the, Absolutely. That, that, that thread of Afrofuturism going right back to as far as Sun Ra. Very, oh, very much so. And funny, yeah. funny enough, when she lived in Trenton, New Jersey, George Clinton was her barber. <laughs> of course he had, <laughs> <laughs> he had the barber shop, didn't he? Yeah. He had a barber shop. He used to cut amazing. her hair, which is amazing. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she's still... Just on the front lines of that, she 
was the artistic director of something at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was called The Cosmic Synthesis of Sun Ra and Afrofuturism. So, Fantastic. and this was just, you know, two years ago. I'd love she, to go to that. She yeah, just yeah. continues to generate, and she's very into helping Black women come forward, supporting their careers, trying to get more Black women involved in tech on the music side, you know, mm. because there are hardly any. And um, no, she's just very, she's an icon to me. You know? we, we, we're huge fans. And as Barney was alluding to as well, I mean, certainly Barney and I are huge Patti LaBelle fans. Oh, yeah. In fact, we can listen to another clip now because I mean, for me, two of the best things I ever heard were the two duets she did with Bobby Womack <laughs> on The Poet too, yes. which is just, just massive records for me. Right. So let's have a listen to this, this clip. Yeah. This is her talking about Bobby. Okay. <laughs> You ever work with Bobby Womack again? I love the things you did with him. I'm going to call him tonight and see. Hey. Yeah. Is he's, he in he's in L- he, He's in L.A. He's yeah. here. We're in England, right? He's here with uh, Ron Wood. He's so, over. He's over here in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So I'm going to call him, and uh, hopefully we'll sing together when I do Hammersmith. Really? Yeah. That would be great. I love Bob. He's the craziest person in the world, and so down to earth. He could tell me where to get some good grub. Tonight. Or maybe he's cooking over there and he'd bring me a hot plate. He's a he's a real nice man. Because you talk about how she's such a great cook. That was one one of the things that Patty brought to the band was the food backstage and so on. So Oh yeah. She used to travel yeah. with a whole like, you know, suitcase of of cookery and hot plates and spices and <laughs> You know, and she's published cookbooks, hasn't she? Yeah, I mean, she, she has. It's a, it's a sort of new new revenue stream for her. Yeah. I found it moving to read this book, Adele, after what's happened here in the UK, mm. the murder of of Sarah Everard, mm. and the huge kind of eruption of rage around this, mm-hmm. which I think is completely understandable Mm. and just to sort of read read about you know female empowerment just how how strong labelle were and everything that it says about about kind of just yeah kind of girl power if you like (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. i mean they they really were trailblazers they were pioneers weren't they and i mean the fact you you weave in your own story which you also reference in peter in the walls about the horrific traumatic experience you had i couldn't help thinking about that in connection with what's happened here and mm. and everything that's getting kind of the reckoning in in a sense that's taking place now mm. uh, i don't mm-hmm. know whether you you know whether you have any feelings on that well of course you know um what happened to sarah was devastating and the statistics about femicide all over the world are are devastating i mean I think this last year, femicide in America has just quadrupled because of the uh, lockdown. I think there, uh, there, the statistics are something like four women a day are murdered in this country. It's just devastating. And, yeah. you know, we need re-education on so many levels. I, I feel like, you know, a lot of this debate goes on in social media, which can often be a very toxic and unproductive place for feminism and and for movement building. And I just think 
you know, I've worked with women in prison too. I've worked with women teaching women songwriting in prison. And I think it's like 80% of women who are incarcerated have been abused, sexually abused, raped, or beaten, uh, you know, victims of domestic violence. I, I just, yeah. you know, we're in such a place where it's reached this pitch of fury. And, you know, I too want to understand how to like, how to, how to re-educate in a way that's more loving and isn't so, you know, I, I think that there's problems with men who are are not empowered in their society where they think they can take it out on women because they Mm -hmm. feel this disempowerment. I also feel that men in power have this entitlement of their power that they think they can abuse Mm. women. But, but this has to end. I mean, you know, it started with the Judeo Christian church and just, you know, yeah. That the idea Absolutely. that women are are less than all the time, and you have to take it back to the root causes. And precisely, and you're, you're quite mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, it's interesting in this country. There are some people who are starting to talk about how the education of men or boys mm-hmm. has to start very early. Yes, I agree. You know, in, 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 I agree. in like primary school, in junior Definitely. school, mm-hmm. you know, that there has to be an actual effort. To, to transform this whole thing. Otherwise, it's just going to go on and on. Well, precisely, um, yeah. We also have a government which is threatening to, is introducing legislation which will make prison terms for tearing down statues of slavers longer than prison terms for rapists. Oh, Jesus. So if you, pull down, if, you, Jesus. if you pull down a statue of a slaver, you could go to jail longer than if you rape someone. I mean, that, this is just mm. crazy. Yeah, it's horrible, yeah, no. isn't it? I mean, there was a placard left at the Bandstand Club and Common that I saw in the paper this morning, a picture of it. And it said, protect your daughter. And there was a line through that. And underneath, the person had written, educate your son. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's yeah. it. Yes, very much so. You very know. Much so. I think there's another element in it as well which kind of speaks to what we've spoken about already on the podcast which is that we've talked about labelle being trailblazing remarkable black women in music Mm -hmm. who were dropped by their label for being trailblazing and and remarkable and and still don't get the credit they deserve i think that all plays a role as well as what you're talking about with men in power why don't labelle get the credit they deserve and it's because they're black women well that's yeah that's that's definitely a part of it but i also really feel that in terms of women in music women have been either invisible or diminished and you know this is because most music journalists have for the most part through the years been male so, you know, mm. if you talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp or Big Mama Thornton, mm-hmm, these yeah. were women mm-hmm. that created rock and roll. Yeah, And I yep. think suddenly we're starting to finally see a lot of women coming forward, black women as well, writing about women in music. There's a couple of books yeah. that came out recently, Black Diamond Queens and Liner Notes for the Revolution. So black women are starting to write about this thankfully because yeah, if we don't write our right own well yeah and if we don't write our own history nobody will you know yeah. briefly to go back to yourself <laughs> there's an album i bought back in 1984 called the flat earth by thomas dolby yes which you feature quite significantly on particularly oh, yes. a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant track called hyperactive so tell me about your childhood <laughs> <being intro. laughs> hey, uh, and, it, and it's a fantastic record so, very Thanks. sadly the Wonderful bass player, Matthew Seligman, died of April last in April yes, last year. Yes, I know, COVID, I know. Which is I know, that was so very, sad. very sad. 
But so you're sad. very significant on it. You, you, you and I actually sort of found a clip on, of you on top of the pops. Ah, oh, no, the old grey whistle. The old grey whistle test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. yes. But also, but also do, on top of the pop, singing with singing with Jelly Bean. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you sang, you sang. You were a very prominent backing singer with a, with a lot of very big acts in that. It's a very it's a world away from the Lower East Side, isn't it? It certainly. But you was, had yeah. this kind of you had this 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 big sort of pop career playing in huge festivals in front of hundreds of thousands of people, and mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you miss that? Would you ever like? Would you like to have been a big a big kind of pop star in that era, or was it enough? the way you experienced it? You know, I, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I'm not ashamed of saying that at all. But I think if I had have become, let's say, famous at the time that, I, you know, I was being signed to Geffen when I was still drinking, it probably would have been an, an Amy Winehouse type of situation. Right. I didn't have the support. I think for people who really make it in the industry, you need an incredibly healthy support network around you. Because otherwise, uh, there's so many people that will come in and try to manipulate you to, you know, worse ends, I think, you know. Yeah. Two amazing documentaries I've seen recently, just that was also on my mind when I was reading your book, was the one about Billie Holiday that was shown on BBC Two here last last weekend, which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And the Billie Eilish documentary on, um, on um, Apple TV. Right, and the sort yeah. of different experiences that they that they, that they had. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, that's not to say that Billie Eilish won't have some problems at that kind of level of fame, but right. it's a very different experience for her than it was for Billie. I mean, she has a, a, a functional nurturing family around her, which of course right, Billie never right. had. Yeah. Have you um, seen the Lee Daniels film yet? No, haven't. Oh, it's brilliant. It's really, it? really amazing. Yeah. A stunning film. I did just briefly want to ask you about Laura Nero. You write beautifully about the album that LaBelle did with her, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. which yeah. I just adore that record. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and some, it's just some of the greatest singing. And also you make the point that it's just, it's, you try to think of other examples of black and white women singing together. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. apart from like in kind of choirs and, 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 and but in that yeah. very, very, on that level of equality, and you can't mm-hmm. think of very many uh, because there aren't that many. But it is a beautiful kind of sound. To be an example, the blend of their voices is is just wonderful. And I think yeah, maybe Nona yeah. says, well, she was like an honorary member of LaBelle. Yes, and that's yes. even before, that's yeah. like four years, three years before Lady Marmalade, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and one of the most extraordinary things about LaBelle was their ability to collaborate with white women in a way that, that was so like elevated and magical and loving, you know, and, you know, I don't understand the, you know, all this segregation that's happening right now in terms of black and white women working together. You know, I, I had a little fantasy in the book that Fiona Apple and Michelle and Deggio Cello would get together and make a record. But, <laughs> yes. you know, it's, yes. it's in a lot of ways, I think that all, a lot of the accusations of appropriation that we hear these days are a new type of framing of segregation. And I think mm-hmm. it's very sad. I mean, let's face it, if black and white women got together in terms of creating a movement, the patriarchy would be gone. Because of the, yes. no, seriously, because of the power. Yeah. Think of the power if, you know, if the powers that be weren't separating us all the time through social media and, you know, social engineering and, 
I mean, that it's, it, it's in their benefit to keep black and white women separate from each other. And I see a lot of that sure. happening in social media yeah. and, and et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the LaBelle album with Laura was like one of the most extraordinary albums to me that has ever been recorded. You can't listen to that record and walk away. Not in awe. Just the, op- you know? the opening of I-, I Met Him on a Sunday yes, yes. Uh, is just, yes. it's just the acapella with just hand claps yeah. for at least, before any instruments come in, yes. about a minute of just yeah. this acapella thing. And it just is just, it's, it's divine. It's so it's divine. divine. It's divine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I met him on a Sunday. Listen, we should remind our listeners that Why Bell Matters is just published this week by the University of Texas Press. In that series, I know that uh, Why Solange Matters is just coming out here fairly soon. And I think your LaBelle book should definitely come out here by Faber should probably be publishing that here too. But it's a wonderful, <laughs> uh, it's just a, a sort of hymn of praise to mm. this this wonderful group that you saw in Cleveland in 1975. Yes, I yes. Think fe- February 75. Is that correct? I can't, I can't remember dates. I'm terrible with dates, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's but it's in the book. Lady, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's before, even before Lady Marmalade get, gets to number one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you saw them and I think you, as a, as you know, you ran out and chatted with them yeah, as they yeah. were getting into the limousine. Yeah. So it's, it's, I was their little like, fangirl, the their little, yes. uh, what Patty yeah. calls a glitter bug. Cause glitter bug. <laughs> so. And she says to you, are you a boy or a girl? Yeah, yeah. And you sort of went, mm, bit of both. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's a great They got a great kick out of that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a great yeah. book. So look, Thank uh, you. Uh, Thanks so you, much. You can get it here. Even if Faber aren't publishing it, you can, you can buy it here. Why the Bell Matters by Adele Berté. Go out So and thank get you it. so much for talking about all of that. Yeah, go out and get it. Oh, exactly. of course. And thank you. Thanks for thank talking you. It'll be available in, just wanted to say, I think the Rough Trade uh, shops will be carrying the book. Cool. Yeah, and they carry the Very Peter cool. and the Wolves book as well. So. Nice. Good old rough trade. You can rely on them to, to <laughs> sell the books that matter. That's that's true. <laughs> Will you please stick around while we move on to things non-Berté related? Of and course. just jump in whenever Thank the you. mood takes you. If there's anything that you that just kind of, yeah, uh, you, you feel you have something to say about, just jump in. Thanks so much <laughs> <You're> so <welcome. laughs> for inviting yeah. me. <laughs> oh, it's lovely, lovely to have you here. So we lost Sally Grossman died just about three or four days ago. And for anyone who doesn't know, Sally Grossman was the widow of Albert Grossman, who was the manager of Bob Dylan and the band and many other acts, including Janis Joplin. We've mentioned Janis Joplin. So we have got a couple of pieces on the homepage, one by Edward Helmore and one by Steve Turner. I mean, guys, did you know anything about Sally Grossman? I mean, did you know about her in connection with Dylan and the band? No, the only thing I knew about Sally Grossman is that you had a run-in with her. <laughs> well, you knew she was the woman on the cover of Bringing It All Back Home. Yes, of course, yes. I mean, yeah. that's, that is her kind of great claim to fame. I think she deserves more of a kind of um, a claim to fame than that, but she is the lady in red who's sitting in front of the fireplace in Bearsville with Dylan and the Persian cat. And so our good friend <laughs> Edward got to know Sally quite yeah. well, and he tells the story of that album cover 
I think he even finds out that the cat was called Lord Gowing. And and Sally says, it, must have, <laughs> it can only have been Dylan who called it Lord Gowing because no one else would have done that. <laughs> but I do think Sally, Sally was quite an important figure in all of that story because Albert was a folk manager. And I think without Sally sort of encouraging him to, to think about younger acts like the band Paul Butterfield and so forth, you know, he might not have created this extraordinary kind of stable of artists up in, in Bearsville. I was amazed she was 81 when she died, but she kept the place going after Grossman died in 1986. You know, Bearsville Studios became a very, very successful studio. And yes, I did have a run-in with her because I wrote a book about that whole scene. And for some reason, she just she just took against me. She was absolutely convinced that I had somehow taken Levon Helm's side against her, Albert, Robbie oh. Robertson, and she just got well, very, poss- very poss- shirty. Possibly because you did slide. I did, but, but, not, but, but not, in a, not in an absolutely binary How could you have way. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't. It's not really fair to okay, say okay, that. It, okay. ma- it makes it sound very black and white, and I just yeah. it, and I, and I really didn't because I don't I don't think it's as, it's that simple. But mm. anyway, mm. Sally Grossman, we're saying goodbye to, and I'm now going to ask Mark to talk us through pieces that have been added in the last fortnight to the Rock's Back Pages Library. So last week. <laughs> Starting to melody maker 1965, Chris Farlow was just about to have, have starting to have hits with songs written by the Rolling Stones. But he had a reputation on the British R&B scene as the great white soul singer, and he says there are white singers in Britain like Steve Winwood that could blow Wilson Pickett off the stage, but they won't own up because they got a chip on their shoulder. All this about being born to the blues is a load of rubbish. Now this is it's essentially a kind of fairly racist statement, and Chris Farlow went on to own and run a Nazi memorabilia shop in Islington. And yes. I, I believe has had some has Jeez. had some links with the British right wing, which is Ooh. you know, for a guy for a guy based his entire career on black music's pretty stinky. He wouldn't be the first. No, it wouldn't be the first. Um, certain Eric Clapton on stage at wherever it was in 1974. <laughs> a minor, a minor figure in the story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, mm. On a much lighter note, Philip Elwood and the San Francisco Examiner reviewing the monkeys live at the Cow Palace in Daly City. And it's, it, he's a kind of jazz snob, but he kind of like he. He enjoys it. He enjoys the, the fans. I mean, just, along with the 17,000 others, all with flash cameras, I'm sure. My youngsters and I had a wonderful time at the KFRC monkey show yesterday at the Cow Palace. It was a pint-sized human wee-in. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that what I think it means? Yes, I think it is. <laughs> uh, Richard Goldstein, New York Times, 1968, reviewing the band's music from Big Pink. I know we get a lot of flack for talking too much about the band on this show, but I thought this is a marvellous review. I love Richard Goldstein as a writer. <laughs> he, he's, he's really stylish. On its own stylistic terms, the band is an honest, versatile and immensely vital new group. So many rock musicians think they must assault an audience to make their presence felt. The band tries for less, but accomplishes more. It makes me long to hear real music, just music once again. I, I think he really he gets the band fabulously. Again, New York Times, 1969, there's a big uh, Michael Lydon feature on Janis Joplin. He hangs out with her while she's rehearsing the first band she was in after uh, Big Brother. Was that the Cosmic Blues Band, Barney, or the Full Tilt Blues yes. Band? No, it was the Cosmic Blues Band. Who yeah. weren't very good. 
And she says, people aren't supposed to be like me, sing like me, make out like me, drink like me, live like mm-hmm. me. But now they're paying me 50,000 bucks a year for, for me to be like me, which I think is, is really great. <laughs> and she says, man, I'd rather have 10 years of super hypermost than live to be 70 by sitting in some goddamn chair watching TV. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> Adele, you said you said earlier that you were singing "Peace of My Heart" when Peter first yes, heard yes, you sing. Yes. Were, oh, really? Were you a, yeah. I can only assume you were a Janice fan. I mean, did she? Did I was she a, yeah. And, yeah. Oh, totally, totally. And you know, yeah. Nona Hendrix wrote the song "Nightbirds," and it was prompted by an exploitive biography that one of Janis Joplin's female lovers had written about her. I can't Peggy remember Cass- the name of the Peggy Cassata. Yes, yes, that's yes, it. Yes. yes. <laughs> love, yeah. I think it was called Love, comma, Janice. Yes, I it? think it was. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, go moving up to 1985, this is Max Bell in Number One magazine interviewing, well, sharing fashion tips with ZZ Top. Which is, <laughs> as, we, as we've all done. As we've yeah. all done. And Billy Gibbons is talking about, you know, ZZ Top, after their initial success, had about three or four years off. Billy went to Paris to work in the do experimental music in the Beauborg and things like that. Not what you'd expect from a Texan blues guitar player. But he's talking about their beards. He says, me and Dusty discovered, this is when they got back together again, me and Dusty discovered we'd grown 14-inch beards in that time. Frank just has the name beard. He shaved his off. <laughs> so I, I always love it. It's, 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 it's one of the great facts about ZZ Top. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this, this week, very nice single review. Penny Valentine and Disco Music Echo in January 68 reviewing Love's Alone Again Or. And she says, certainly the best of the West Coast groups. I've always loved Love's ability to combine progress with strong melody and a certain indefinable something. New writer we've got on board, Maureen O'Grady, which we're very, very pleased about, wrote for Rave in the 60s. And she's interviewing Mick Taylor in 69, just before setting off the American tour. And he says, I remember being completely speechless when I got to Hyde Park. That's when it hit me that I was a stone. Yeah. So it's so great to have. I mean, to to add to your collection of pioneering female pop writers of the sixties, Mark. It's so I love great, it, isn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 a, Adele. It's a big thing of mine. I just I become completely obsessed with these marvelous women who wrote for the pop papers in the sixties. I love it. And mostly I love got, it. Mostly got shoved aside. You know when the when it got serious mm-hmm. and the men came in and took over, mm. but it's it's a, <laughs> Philip Elwood again. This is from the San Francisco Examiner, in January seventy, and it's possibly the very first mention of Bruce Springsteen in print. And he's reviewing Bruce's band, then band called Steel Mill, mm. and he says, "I've never been so overwhelmed by totally unknown talent." Steel Mill does all their own stuff, mostly written by lead guitarist singer Bruce Springsteen, and mixes things up so informally and well that an observer just has to get involved. So he gets Bruce Springsteen way before the rest of the world do, which I think is mm. pretty good. Yeah, Ian yeah, yeah. Deary, interviewed by Barry Kane, Record Mirror 79, satire is the last outpost of the bankrupt middle-class public school wanker. <laughs> are we allowed to say wanker? <laughs> of course we are. <laughs> Who's stopping us? Uh, and, and everybody keeps saying I'm ugly. I don't think I'm ugly. Nah, I'm just around a corner and three doors down from handsome. That's all. 
Love it. Uh, Another new writer we've I've recruited in the last kind of couple of weeks is Judy Panabianco, who wrote for Boston Rock. Mm. And this is an interview with Keith Levine from 1983. He'd just left Pill. And he says, any music you ever hear on a Pill record, except for the occasional drum track, is me. The music's me. Later he says, it was me, John and Sid. We all thought each other worked great. Sid died, and John has now died, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. It's a really bitter interview. Mm. It's, it's extraordinary. Wow. wow. Yeah. He was in New York. Did you come across him in New York? Because uh, Keith Levine was living in New York at that no, time. No, I did not, no. Right. Probably just as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe just as well. Yeah, you're both still alive. That's the important. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I, again, for him, by the skin of his teeth, because he, he he developed a fairly serious heroin problem. Mm. Well, yeah, I believe mm. that's my lot. So I'm over to you two chaps. Beautiful. Well, I feel like I should just mention the featured writer and just also reiterate that we oh, have yes. two great pieces about LaBelle on the homepage this week, both by female writers, Lillian Roxon talking to Nona in 1972, yeah. mm-hmm. which is which is a great piece, and Robin Catt, a cover story for Let It Rock in 75, which is really great because it sort of starts in Philadelphia. They're doing a show called Morningside. So it starts in the fall of 74. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the last bit of it is in Amsterdam when Lady Marmalade has been released as a single. So it, it, it sort of covers about three or four months. It's great. Paul Rambali is the featured writer mm-hmm. and I kind of tie mm-hmm. in with some of the themes. This piece he wrote about the Cleveland scene. Um, he went there for enemy in early 78 and reported on all these extraordinary new bands that were kind of popping up. So it's going to roll call of bands from Cleveland and, and Akron, mainly Perubu, and he mentions Devo, the Bizarros. I think he even mentions Human Switchboard. There's also an interview he, he did with August Darnell for The Face in 1981, which, which is great. So I wanted to mention those. And in terms of pieces just going into the library, there's a lovely interview with Millie Jackson, another very strong black mm. female performer, from 2004, just Love looking her. back on her career and, and her transgressive X-rated soul. A great piece about Screaming Lord <laughs> Such, actually, which, I mean, I learned, I learned quite a lot about the man born David Such, that Alan Clayson wrote in, in 2012, just about, <laughs> I mean, Mark will remember the monster raving loony party. Oh, God, I yes. don't think Jasper <laughs> may not remember them. I remember um, the monster raving loony party, actually. about them, Adele. Do you? Okay, yeah, you yeah. do. All right. Okay. I well, thought you might be too I've young. I've heard of Screaming Lord Such. Yeah, yeah. Lord but but what yeah, was, yeah, did yeah, he come yeah. after Screaming Jay Hawkins or before? Oh yeah. He did, but he's he, the screaming he did borrow from 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 Jay. Okay. He, he also this, I think, I, he, no, he also did getting out of the coffin bit as well. Ah. He did, you are absolutely so, right. He did. So, so you're he, quite he, right, Mark. He, he's mm-hmm. it's, you know, a white guy from some Essex or wherever he's from, basically <laughs> kind of attempting to be <laughs> screaming Jay Hawkins. Yeah. <laughs> but he was good, he was good just, luck with that. Yeah. He was just an ever present <laughs> on the kind of hustings, really, in the political scene. The they always stood for election, the monster raving loony party essentially mm-hmm. sending up the whole thing but but there was a seriousness also to what to, with, with, with this piece kind of reminded me that it wasn't all just daft lampooning um it's quite a good piece mm. anyway that's that's all i'm going to mention from the kind of last 20 years i'm going to ask jasper if he's got any like little little treats in store for us Little tidbits. I wanted to actually mention <laughs> something from last week. Our featured writer last week was Michael A. Gonzalez, a great writer. 
Yeah. And one of the pieces was him remembering the notorious B.I.G., Biggie. Mm-hmm. And there's a film out on Netflix yes. just recently, Biggie, I've Got a Story to Tell, which I've not quite finished, but the, what I've seen of it is just great. Loads and loads of footage recorded by D-Rock on like a handheld camcorder mm-hmm. type setup. And it's it's a really worth a watch. And Michael A. Gonzalez's piece is worth a read. It's just great. It, it finishes, cue up your nobody till somebody kills you. Listen to Biggie's gruff, bottomless voice riding the beat, spitting phrases that thrill you. It's almost like he's still here. Almost like he'll be notorious forever. He just is. I mean, I, mean, I think Michael A. Gonzalez says in his piece, he's the greatest rapper ever he just he's definitely in that conversation if not just is the best rapper ever and he, he just there's something about his flow and in the documentary what's great is that whereas previous things about him often kind of focus on the two-pack biggie murder mystery kind of element of it this documentary yes. so far is pretty much about him and his music in a way that is refreshing and i think should be the case really because his music was so great and there's great stuff from a, a saxophonist who he lived near was, was his neighbor who kind of was initially trying to groom him to become a jazz musician and having him listen to bebop snares and that's kind of where some you know max roach bebop snare drumming like where biggie's flow kind of came oh, from lovely. and i just think it's it's a it's a great yes. great watch and he's so great he's so wonderful i mean i love Biggie. yeah they, you know what they also go into his musicality that, that he loved to listen yeah. to bands like the stylistics and the dramatics yeah. and and you know it's something you wouldn't guess about him but he that you know he used to love singing along to that stuff so. yeah someone someone yeah. describes him as like almost like an r&b singer mm-hmm. but rapping instead mm-hmm. of instead of singing yeah yeah it's just as great. i leave my competition respirator style climb the ladder to success escalator style hold y'all breath i told y'all death controls y'all big don't fall y'all uh I spit phrases that'll thrill you. You're nobody till somebody kills you. Michael Gonzalez, you know Michael Gonzalez, don't you, Adele? Or at least his neighbor Piers. I don't know him well, but he was very complimentary about my book, which I was thrilled about. Mm-hmm. And I, I like his writing a lot. He, yeah, oh, he's, he's really, really good. He's yeah. great. One of the other feature pieces was him talking about all, all, smoking blunts with Biggie and Snoop and Cypress <laughs> oh, Hill. Man. He just goes through everyone he smoked a blunt with. And it's just a great <laughs> answer. Nice. So, so good. <laughs> just a couple of things to mention, funny things from this week that I added. Battle of the Blands, <laughs> Westlife versus the Spice Girls, Caroline Sullivan in The Guardian in 2000. And it's just a really funny. I mean, she's, Caroline Sullivan at her acerbic best, just absolutely tearing into the whole Westlife versus Spice Girls thing, sort of what what does the biggest chart clash being those two tell us about the music <laughs> business? And and her, her verdict is nothing good, basically. It's a very funny article. <laughs> then an Eric Weisbad review of, of Le Tigre, their album Feminist Sweepstakes, mm, which is which is great. Title. Trio's 1999 debut was a lifesaver. Yes. The one cool record in the year of rock rap, as they themselves sum it up on track on their album after that. And songs like My My Metrocard illustrated what sex in the city might have been if the entire American viewing public consisted of Janine Garofalo. Ah! Which is funny. <laughs> That's great. That's, That's great. And the last thing just to just to mention is a really Really interesting piece. Candy a Crazy Horse in the San Francisco Bay Guardian in May 2007. And it's talking about Lily Allen, Joss Stone and Amy Winehouse and taking on the subject of 
cultural appropriation of, in this case, British white singers taking on a black soul voice and selling records through that. And Janis Joplin actually is mentioned in it. Stone may be styled in psychedelic body paint flowers and baubles as some lost wild child of Janis Joplin. But unlike that late bad Jewish girl with a yen for the blues icon, she lacks the ovaries and independence to instigate any sonic revolt, nor does she transcend her black influences. Although she too failed to flip the rock biz's race politics, Joplin was an original. She was also perfecting a worthy form of hybridity, whereas Stone would still do best to apprentice behind a seasoned soul singer and grow into her voice. Meanwhile, she's an immature artist trapped within the middle-class mythos and mass fantasies of the pop star system. And the whole article is is very, very strong on that whole topic. I just think it's well worth reading, and it's still so relevant today as well. This is, this is written by a black woman who made a country album. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all of this appropriation talk just I, I, I find it so hard to listen to sometimes, you know. It's 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 kind of worms for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, for it's, sure. it's a difficult topic, but I think you you kind of have to listen when someone is saying, Well, there's this why can't we do this thing that, that other people can come and do and, and profit from from us. Yeah, but it also really sure. depends on how we're raised and what we resonate to sure. and how we you know, how all of these influences come out in, in an artist's work. I don't think they should be shamed for that, you know? And also appropriation has always gone both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, for for example, Prince, one of the great artists of our lifetime, hoovered up so much from white rock and roll. I mean, where, where did white rock and roll come from? But I do think that, that appropriation does go both ways, but I think the power dynamic only goes one way, and that, well, that's, that's the problem. That, that, the, the problem is the power dynamic. It's not sure. the appropriation itself. It's yeah. the appropriation attached to this horribly unjust system that, that exists. Fair and right. I agree with that's that. Right. I I totally lies. agree with that. The the power dynamic. You and know? you write a lot about that in the in the in the LaBelle book. Mm-hmm. That's a constant mm-hmm. kind of you know mo- motif that pops up. You know right, to explain right. why th- why they weren't more successful or lauded than than exactly. than they than they were. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's an interesting yeah. moment where I think doesn't Patty describes Laura Nero as a black mm-hmm. woman in a, in a white body. Well, uh, other black writers have, have done that as well. Like Mark Anthony Neal yeah. has talked about Laura sure. Nero like that. And um, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's brought it neat full circle. So that's my lot. Great. Fantastic. I think that probably brings us to the end of what's been a wonderful episode. It's been really, really interesting talking to you about all of this stuff from so Peter Lochner to LaBelle and beyond. And can we expect the, the no New York memoir or part two kind of memoir thing at some point are you actually working on that oh of course we want to read it yeah we i am I'm working. that's fact, we'll, we'll that's... start a Kickstarter <laughs> right now that's that's what lydia and i speaking of the spice girls we call ourselves the slice girls so um <laughs> we uh <laughs> you can expect you can expect the no new york book i don't know how soon but uh um, okay. you know there is a bit of a retro virus of people being still endlessly fascinated with that you know, New York scene of the late 70s, early 80s. Absolutely. So. I caught that yeah. virus. And, Me too. Um, yeah, and yeah. I haven't I'm found s- a vaccine. Haven't found a vaccine <laughs> for it. <laughs> Pfizer have yet to produce one. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, know, I think Barney and I both caught it way back. I mean, for me, there's a lot of stuff I loved defunct every time defunct came to london i'd go and see him uh, james blood ulmer i loved and whilst they weren't kind of oh yeah immediately of that scene 
that sort of stuff. I, I found English post-punk a bit dour. And so just hearing music made you want to get up off your chair and shake one's scrawny white booty. Sort of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing, nothing dour about this record. No, I know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, found it, I couldn't find it on Spotify, but I did find Button Up by the Bloods on YouTube. And it's on that New York noise compilation, which is a kind of son of no New York, isn't it? Which came out maybe yes. like 15 years ago. Yes, definitely. And who played, who played bass on this track? Because it's a, it's a Oh, that was Brenda track. Alderman. Brenda Alderman is an amazing Great. bassist. And, uh, you know, I had written some demos with her, which got me the Geffen deal. And then as soon as I got the Geffen deal, they said, you got to get rid of Brenda. Oh, for God's Interesting, sake. Interesting, eh? Where have yeah. we heard that story uh, before? So, yeah. Dear, dear. Mm. Separate, separate you from the people you can do things with. It's exactly. Just great. Oh, I know, it's terrible. That's very terrible. Also, all these amazing female bass players. I mean, I forget her name, but Kid Creole had a brilliant woman bass player. Kim mm-hmm. Clark and Defunct was Gail just fantastic. Gail Ann Dorsey. Gail Ann Dorsey, yeah. I, I met Gail in the past. She lived up in Woodstock, so I, I got to know her a little bit. Yeah. To our friend Abba, you know, our mutual friend Abba. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is getting all a little bit too incestuous. We better, we better <laughs> wrap up. Okay. Otherwise, we'll just be sitting there like, God, just like shooting the shit about nothing in particular. I know. It's not really what we do anyway. But Mark, will you talk us out with? Uh, no, with well, just, well, uh, no, but well, Barney, I suggest you introduce the last clip because you're sort of more sort of au fait with. What is that because you can't remember what it is? No, I can't remember. <laughs> no, what it is. <laughs> I suggest. No, I'm kidding. Um, under consideration that you should introduce the final clip. Um, the, the, the final clip of the from the August. August I can't even say August. I don't know how to pronounce August Darnell. August 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 Darnell. It's basically him talking about Stony Browder, who was his older brother, and Stony Browder essentially was the leader of Doctor buzzard in the original savannah band or the savannah band and so basically larry jaffe asks him what would stoney have thought of the chercher la femme musical that is about to open off broadway and this is august's response we'll be back in two weeks with joel selvin another californian resident talking about his new book hollywood eden so i'm looking forward to that oh i want to i want to join us again then i want to talk to him about that money about his me yeah, yeah, that too. That too. No, you know his 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 ultimate book, which I, I just reread his ultimate book, which is really fantastic. Okay, great. And well, make sure you've yeah. read Hollywood well, Eden look- by this time. By this time, in a fortnight. <laughs> a lot of Possibly reading not. homework for this poem. Probably. Anyway, all right. We're finally say saying goodbye. Adele, bless you for joining us. It's so great to see you. Enjoy another sunny day in Southern California. Thank you. I had such a great time. Thanks for inviting me. Really fun. Thank well, you so, so much. Indeed, it's been great. <laughs> it's so been really great. Fantastic. Bye. 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 What would have your brother made of, of, of the show? Well, Stoney was never into theater. He didn't, as a matter of fact, he frowned upon it and thought it was quite boring. And uh, you could never get him to, to go see a theater piece, for instance. But he did like the films that were made of, 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 of theater pieces, like The King and I he'd watch, and The Sound of Music he'd watch, but he'd never go to see them on Do you stage. So he would probably frown upon this and say, uh, little brother, you're uh, wasting your time. Uh, let's go for a gig together somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> He's got no woman at the 
That was August Darnell in conversation with Larry Jaffe in 2016, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to a special guest, Adele Berté. Why Bell Matters is published by University of Texas Press and available now from all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Sorry, carry on, Jasper. I just was, it, it finishes... I was going to say... Q- uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pitfalls of Zoom. Yeah, the joys of... We're going to have to start raising our hands, wait, wait, aren't we? Like, like, I, like that. Uh, yeah, Mark yeah. is oh, blushing. Has, oh, look, Ronnie Hoskins <laughs> has something to say. Yeah, well, he's always got something to say. <laughs>